Hey guys, Jim Cox, FFG Advisors, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with an interview with Rhodes Perry. He's a uh, consultant that specializes in working on building diversity within companies, and he has a new book out called Belonging at Work, and it was recommended to me by uh, one of my uh, fans, and um, you know, this is really a, a subject that's kind of near and dear to the work that I do and really uh, a lot of the issues that I've dealt with, uh, helped people deal with during, uh, during the lives we've led. So, uh, Perry, Rhodes, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into working on diversity within companies? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, I can give you the Cliff Notes version, uh, which really started uh, when I was a, a, yes, an activist on, on campus. I went to the University of Notre Dame uh, for undergrad, and I went to NYU for grad school. And uh, that was kind of late 90s, early aughts, and uh, really worked to try to get the school to be more inclusive of LGBT students at that time. So as you can imagine, Notre Dame is a little bit more conservative. Mm -hmm. And um, as a student there, um, you know, I'm a member of the LGBT community. So I'm a transgender guy. I identify as bisexual and um, was uh, uh, always a part of the, the Catholic Church and uh, really wanted to kind of create a more inclusive campus. And so did a lot of advocacy there and the same in grad school. And um, when I went out to join the, the workforce, I, I, one of my first jobs was working at the Department of Justice. Um, I eventually started working in LGBT advocacy organization. And throughout that time, no matter what my job was, somehow I got involved with employee resource groups or um, at, at the time mostly with HR to try to craft ways of creating workplaces that, that worked for me, at least, as someone who is transgender. And um, at, at that time, you know, in the early aughts, like something like 8% of people knew someone who was transgender or worked with someone who was transgender. So um, I was pretty fortunate in that most of my employers, while they didn't really know how to support me through pol workplace policies or things like healthcare, things of that nature, um, at least those, those kind of leaders that I interface with directly we're really open to kind of say, all right, like, let's figure this out together. Let's try to make this work. Um, you know, that was mostly my career when I was working for someone else. Eventually, I started my own business where I realized, you know, I can help more people based off of what I've learned over, like, these past two decades of working with other, working for other people to kind of help businesses now who are really trying to think through how do we, how do we bring on board more historically underrepresented, undervalued talent because we know what the future looks like. We know the future will be way more diverse in terms of the workplace, and we're not really sure what to do. And so it's, it's been a great journey, um, and that's, that's definitely the Cliff Notes version, but um, I'm really, really fortunate in what I get to do now because I, I get to help leaders who, you know, they already understand the value of having a more diverse team, serving more diverse stakeholders, um, they just aren't necessarily sure how to do it, and and they're committed to to this idea of creating a sense of belonging for everyone on the team. And and basically, like the way that I define that, and the way I define it in my book, is that belonging is not something where you know, kind of old traditional ways in the workplace is like, 
I just have to assimilate and be like everyone else in order to fit in and do my job. Um, the, the way that I define belonging is that you can show up and be your authentic self. Like you can be you. Um, you're valued for your differences. Your differences are seen as a source of strength for the team. Um, and um, that your contributions, like your genius, why you got hired, is valued. You know, And so many people in the workplace, when I started doing research for this book, something like 72% of people feel like they have no purpose in their work. Um, they're not engaged. And so that's a, I mean, that's totally a missed opportunity for really leveraging, you know, uh, one staff person's productivity. Like if they don't feel engaged, you know, that their productivity drops off, you know, but um, as Simon Sinek says, you know, he's like the author of, of, of why, find your why. Um, he often says, you know, like if, if someone really believes in the mission of an organization, they're going to give you their blood, sweat, and tears. They're not just going to exchange their time for money. They're going to they're going to stay committed to why you know that organization exists. And so, I want more workplaces to be like that. And so that's why I wrote the book. That's why I do what I do every day. And uh, it's really, really rewarding work. No, I uh, I get that, and uh, definitely I think there's a lot to be said. You know, there've been a number of studies, and I've done a bit of writing about the subject of diversity. I mean, there have been a number of studies that have shown, proven, that companies that have a more diverse workplace, that value diversity and equality in terms of, um, you know, kind of core values, perform better on, you know, whether it's in terms of revenue or cash flow or stock performance. I mean, these are real tangible results that are to the benefit of the company and yet you know a lot of times you find corporate culture that really pushes back against you know inclusion of people and you know make it more my way or the highway kind of mentality yeah yeah that kind of that um and, and i think like that kind of leadership I mean, it still definitely is dominant in a, in a lot of workplaces. I, I think the next generation of leaders are, are thinking thinking a different way, you know, because, right, like, you think about command and control, like you said, my way or the highway. We are humans. Like, we are so wired to resist that. Um, you know, if, if someone is telling you something to do, um, you're, you're less likely to kind of be, like, bought into, like, oh, this is, I get the mission of this organization. I want to commit to it. It's like, ugh, I'm being told what to do again. It's like there is that natural resistance versus um, more of like an inclusive leadership style. And I, I write about that in the book as well, which is it, it, it's it's inspiring people who are showing up to the job of recognizing their role and advancing whatever that mission of the organization is. And the great thing is that you know nonprofits and sometimes government to a certain extent, you know, they're rooted in a mission, right? We're now seeing more for-profit, more corporate uh, organizations centering their work, centering their purpose around a mission, right? And we see that with certified B corporations, right? These are organizations committed to um, what I talk about in the book called the triple bottom line, which is you care about your people, you care about the planet, and by doing both of those things well, 
you generate more profit because people believe in the business that you're doing. So um, I write about Ben and Jerry's. You know, they're a great example. They make ice cream, right? But they're very committed to treating their people well. Um, they're very committed to the planet. So as they produce their ice cream, they're, they're thinking about, okay, are, are the containers in the ice cream, are they recyclable? And are they meeting our environmental standards? And how do we communicate that to the people that buy our product? And, you know, for, for a younger generation of folks, really evaluating, you know, where you're spending your money. You know, are you spending your money on organic products or products that, you know, are, are mindful of how they're produced? And that's where their money is being generated. So if you're a business that's kind of operating, like, like you said, it's kind of my way or the highway and we're going to do it the way we've always done it. Um, I mean, unfortunately, I think those, those businesses, those business practices, um, they're, they're, they won't be relevant. They're, they won't be competitive with the way that the business world is shifting around, kind of centering around this idea of the, of the triple bottom line. And I think, like, you know, I mean, if we're being realistic about what we're seeing, you know, at least out of the science, science you know, people who trust science and, um, are looking at what is coming out around what's happening to the planet right now. We have to change, you know, and I think business is um, one of the places where social change can happen, and we're seeing that in lots of really interesting ways. No doubt. Um, you know, one of the... Um one of the aspects of, I mean, so many businesses are, since the Great Recession, have really had their margins cut. And so the ability to kind of capture additional clients really is at a premium, you know. So anything that they can do to expand that pool of potential buyers for whatever it is in terms of what they do, you know, based on the values of those clients, um, if somebody's going to choose A over B because company A is doing the right thing, you know, they've got to swim in that pond in order to stay financially relevant. Absolutely. And, and I think, like, also that, that goes to your people and your talent. I mean, we're seeing more kind of mid-level hiring or you know, senior level hiring where, I mean, you're hiring for your next VP, they're, they're doing their due diligence and talking with other staff at, at, you know, your company or other companies to kind of say, you know, what's the culture like? Um, will I fit in there? You know, I'm, especially for candidates that aren't, um, that, that may be people of color, they may be LGBT, they may be women, they may be all of those things. Um, you know, it's really, really important for people who aren't necessarily part of the dominant culture to know that there's a commitment to diversity and inclusion, that um, it lives in everyday practices. It's not just something that is, you know, in a, <laughs> a mission statement or a value statement, and that's it. You know, it's something that's lived and breathed with the organization. Um, and it, it, I think, like, a relevant example, this just came out yesterday, um, there is a, a, a staff person at Facebook, um, and he's black, and he was writing about um, how as much as Facebook talks a good game around diversity and inclusion, he was sharing his experiences of how hard it was just to do his job. And he was yeah, you know, he's a, a tech coder, and um, I'm not sure if you saw that, but it was in Diversity yeah, Inc., yeah. they, they're a great publication. And... Um, and he was just talking about, you know, what I talk about in the book called microaggression. So it's not like 
overt discrimination where someone's being like overtly racist, right? But like these microaggressions are also a form of racism where, you know, people walking down the hall will put their hands in their pants and look look the other way thinking that they're going to get mugged or something. Mm. Um, and he was just talking about how it was such an awful experience. And he said, um, you know, what was really hard for him is that he was he would go off-site to other um, locations where Facebook is located, and he would see more Black Matter or more Black Lives Matter signs, you know, as, as a show of allyship. More of those signs than people of color in the buildings working. And he's like, "There's there's something wrong here." Um, and you know, I was looking a little bit closer at, at Facebook, and um, most of their leadership, you know, at the, the Mark Zuckerberg level, I mean, they're all white. You know, so it's really difficult to see your blind spots, so to speak, if you don't have people that are representative of, of your consumers, right? Mm-hmm. So the talent that you bring and making sure that your pipelines are diversified, that's going to help you, I mean, and, and not just superficially at the front lines, but for your senior leaders, mid-level leaders, um, to really be able to um, both make sure that you're aware of where, you know, unconscious bias exists. And also, you know, to improve your products, to improve your services, mm-hmm. um, to make sure that they're appealing to people who have resources and want to buy, you know, products, but they, those products just don't appeal to them because they're not culturally appropriate. So those are, those are like the other things to think through. Um, like if you do want to appeal to, you know, what a lot of corporations talk about, we want to diversify our markets or we want to access new markets. Well, you want to make sure that the markets that you want to break into, that you have staff that understand um, those markets specifically. And um, so it's, it seems like common sense when we talk about it. And yet, uh, you know, it, it, it's still not happening. The, the indicators of success for, you know, big corporations committed to, to inclusion, they're, they're still struggling with this. Well, the, uh, the reality is, yeah. though, that it, you know, what it requires is leadership and not just the CEO, but I would say, you know, everybody in management, you know, looking within and, you know, asking harder questions of themselves that, you know, challenge whether or not they can, you know, bring or reinforce or support, you know, a diverse environment. And the truth is a lot of people don't want to deal with those questions. Because they're uncomfortable. Really, yeah. Yeah, it's a really great point, and um, it's one of the things that um, I, I talk about this a lot with with peers um, in, in in the field that I'm in, where um, we'll talk. You know, like what you said, it's not just necessarily the CEO. So I'm sure if you sat down with Mark Zuckerberg at, at Facebook, he would he would talk about ways he champions diversity and inclusion, right? Um, and I'm sure folks immediately on his team are on board with different efforts that they're trying to make to to make their company better. Um, and I'm sure people on the front lines are also, you know, more representative of different communities that Facebook serves. It's, it's oftentimes, and I'm just using Facebook as an example, but I would say this is, you know, more the norm that I see, at least with clients that I work with, uh, very large, very large government agencies or corporations where it's what we call the frozen middle. So kind of management in the middle will often see you know, especially in government, you know, we have a new, we have a new commissioner, we have a new director, whatever their, their title is, like, and these directors or commissioners come and go, 
um, and they always have new initiatives, and we're just going to ride this out until someone new comes in, and then we're not going to have to do this new initiative. And and um, and sadly, you know, with the changes, especially around diversity and inclusion, that that frozen middle is really hard to move and to to penetrate. And sometimes it's because people are uncomfortable. Sometimes it's because um, people aren't clear on what the directive is to make changes, and it's it's difficult to kind of kind of go up the flagpole to ask the questions, you know, um, and to get the support that's needed. And so I think like, and this is a reflection on the work that still needs to be done for companies like mine of like, how do we work with folks in middle management to really give them the support or inspire them to make the changes that need to be done? Because the reality is, is that they often can have the keys to the kingdom to make those, those massive culture shifts because you know, if you think of a, a multinational corporation, they've got sites, you know, I don't know, like think about like Wells Fargo, they're everywhere, right? I mean, think about every branch, every branch location, as much as there's a directive from San Francisco where their base, their headquarters are, as much as there's a commitment to diversity and inclusion, there's a different culture at every one of those branches. So how do you, how do you have consistency when you're spread so far globally and that's that's a great challenge and that's really where that that middle management layer um you know i i hope that there's listeners out there thinking about this because that's a big opportunity um and you know it's something that folks within the field are thinking through and um you know there isn't you know like what we were talking about before we were recording there's not really there's not a silver bullet or you know this panacea but if we do this one thing then we've, we've figured it all out it's an ongoing process and um this work is something that's not static you know so as much as we're hopeful about the promise of artificial intelligence right um it's not like artificial intelligence is going to kind of weed out our own unconscious biases like we have to do the personal work and then you know collectively we have to do the work to shift an organization's culture yeah well if anything actually there was a uh, program on bloomberg last night where they were talking about AI and the likelihood that AI would actually perpetuate um, discrimination and um, some of these issues around um, just as roadblocks to diversity, just because of the way that the language is used to program the AI. So, yes. yeah. Yes. So, so, I mean, yeah, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, like in calculus or like math classes where it's like you plot, you have these formulas, it's kind of like garbage in is garbage out, yeah. you know? So like yeah. if we haven't done the work to kind of really check our own unconscious biases, we are programming AI. And um, I've done some research on this and, and um, I've worked with some, some IT folks around artificial intelligence and like the, there is that promise that you have to really... There's, there's a lot of checks and balances that you have to put into the algorithms to make sure that you're aware of where biases may live, right? And um, one of the when I was doing research for uh, a webinar that I did earlier this year, um, I was looking at Twitter, and um, Twitter had, I don't know, they it's kind of like a how, you know, or they, they had this kind of supercomputer brain where they were like, okay, this is Twitter's AI account, and they, they opened it up for a little bit, and it was interesting of like how it was pulling out its own tweets, but then it's pulling from all of the Twitter, you know, the the Twitter universe, right? And 
eventually it started to just, it had some really awful tweets that it was putting out, like very racist, sexist, homophobic, and they had to, it got to be like this kind of Frankenstein creation that they had to shut it down, you know, so um, we have to be really, really careful with with AI, and um, there are some of the bigger tech companies that are coming together to say, our checks and balances have to be, you know, if if we're putting out AI, we have to be really transparent with how we're programming these algorithms. And so there's, I think they're in the process of setting up a some kind of like a nonprofit, um, which is all about transparency and, and AI. So I feel like that's, that's going to be like a future <laughs> problem. Uh, there's hope in it, you know, with every technology and there's, it, there's also a shadow side to it. And, um, yeah. And I think when it comes to uh, unconscious bias, we have to be super careful not to, not to like lean heavily on AI as like it will be our our savior. And, um, you see that sometimes like they're they're using AI now to kind of scrub out like if you're trying to hire someone for your company um, and you're you're you want to be really mindful. I just want to look at the qualifications of this candidate, and I don't want to look at their name because I know sometimes if I look at their name, my own unconscious bias will come up. So I'm going to scrub out every identifying piece of information about this candidate. Um, and there's a lot of companies using this kind of technology now. And yet, even when that technology is used, there's still bias like that's being exercised. So it's um, unfortunately that's still that small technology shift is not the is not the silver bullet, even in kind of reviewing applicants for jobs. Well, I mean, this work is hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the challenges, though, in terms of. So, I mean, you're fundamentally talking about having to kind of expand the, you know, how leadership is really trained throughout corporate America. And the challenge is when you're looking at a work environment where, you know, margins are more compressed, where, you know, AI is clearly taking jobs from, from, uh, especially middle management um, and a lot of professional skills. And, you know, people are feeling more under pressure than ever in terms of, you know, feeling the need to keep their job. The the motivation to kind of step outside the bounds of what they know and embrace kind of a new perspective is, I think, especially daunting. So how do we overcome that? Yeah, these are the questions, right, that that we, I I think, as a society have to to really examine. And, uh, you know, I think for as many jobs as AI will replace, there will be other other kinds of jobs that we haven't imagined that that will be in place to, I think, you know, just as that example of, of transparency. I mean, there has to be oversight of, you know, if there's repetitive things that nobody wants to do, yes, like, let's program an algorithm to do these repetitive functions. But how do we make sure that those repetitive functions are, you know, like, there still has to be a check and a balance um, to make sure that the the machine is functioning the way that we intended it to. Um, And if we just kind of go on autopilot, I think that's when all of the sci-fi predictions of how machines will take over the planet, you know, 
I, you know, I've, I've been following Elon Musk pretty closely around his warnings of artificial intelligence and, and at least in, in kind of the private sector and probably most, mostly in kind of um, uh, government contractors that are working on military contracts in particular, there, there is some concern ar- around how artificial intelligence is being managed. And um, so I, I don't have an answer for that other than to say to any of your listeners who have a fire in their belly, you know, and, and being an entrepreneur, this is, it's, um, you know, any, any kind of concern or any kind of fear, there's always an opportunity in that. Um, and, and trying to use business as a way to um, do do good in the world and, and to kind of create a more just society. And so um, I'm hopeful that someone will be inspired by this conversation and have more answers than I do on, on the question you just posed. Cool. What, one of the uh, things um, that is kind of a, a marked difference from you know, the current um, political environment during the Obama administration, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of regulations, a lot of laws um, passed to really promote and kind of enforce diversity and, um, you know, uh, minority rights, whether it's around um, transgender or, you know, disabilities. Um, with the current environment, it doesn't seem as much as that type of thinking is protected. That, you know, there aren't the laws. The laws, I imagine, are still in effect, but the enforcement of the laws, you know, may be a different matter. Is that kind of what you say? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky time, um, a lot of my, my past advocacy has been around LGBT inclusion in the workplace when I um, was was working as an advocate in D.C. Um, so I'm really familiar with existing laws, like um, things like Title IX or even Title VII, you know, which is the, the original Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, the, the interesting thing that's happening right now in D.C. is that you're right, like as much as so short of those first two years of the Obama administration from 2008 to 2010, um, most of the changes that the Obama administration did around the workplace or education that was in support of LGBT folks, people of color, women, that was all done through regulation. So you're right in that the current administration right now is kind of really like just looking at all of those regulations and anything that goes against their philosophy, they are they are, you know, rescinding or changing those regulations. So, and they, that's the power of the executive office. They can do that. Um, the, the good thing is that the laws that are passed by Congress and signed by the president, such as the Civil Rights Act and Title IX, those will always be in place. How they're enforced, like you said, it, it depends on who's in power. Um, and when it comes to the workplace, you know, certainly the Department of Justice, the current Department of Justice has um, issued lots of um, um, different guidance around their interpretation of, of existing laws like Title Title Seven and Title Nine, um, and the Equal Employment Office uh, Commission um, is an independent commission, and so. Um, there's one of the co-directors is High Feldblum, and she uh, is um, has she was appointed by the Obama administration, and her term carries over 
um, into this current administration. And she has a very different interpretation on existing laws like Title IX and Title VII, as do as do the courts. So you've got um, district courts, you've got um, circuit courts that all have case history in you know defending the rights of people of color, of, of women, of LGBT folks. And that case law can never be you know, it is what it is. Um, and so a lot of a lot of challenges to the way that the current administration is interpreting laws is, you know, slowly going through the court system um, and will eventually, I mean, there's a couple of cases right now that are being considered by the Supreme Court. So, you know, um, it's, it, it, the, I think the, the hardest thing is what's happening right now is a lot of confusion that's being introduced around existing laws. And, um, and and it really doesn't matter who has the bully pulpit in D.C. Uh, and so that that is creating some challenges for historically undervalued, underrepresented workers in the United States. Um, and so that definitely places people who are immigrants, um, whether they're documented or they're not, um, uh, transgender people, of course, um, people of color, women, uh, it, it creates a lot of challenges. And so that's really where, in my opinion, I think private businesses in particular, if they do believe in business as being a vehicle for social justice or creating good in the world, really being active and, and stepping up. You know, so if you have, I, mean, I imagine you have a lot of business owners who listen to your podcast. You know, what can you do as a leader of your own business? How can you set the tone, especially if you disagree with um, some of the, uh, some of the targeting of really vulnerable populations that's happening out of D.C. right now. I mean, I think that's the power that the business community has. And the good thing is that um, in, in my wheelhouse, I'm really familiar with transgender workers, transgender rights. Uh, uh, over, I think, after the recent attempt to legally redefine gender, you know, out of out of the White House, um, 62 major corporations have stepped forward to say they disagree with that and that they're going to stand up for the transgender workers. And I think that's really powerful. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, you know, it can feel like a scary time, I think, if you're someone who, who feels really vulnerable in the workplace. And the good news is that um, more and more corporate leaders are stepping forward to say, this is not who we are as a business, and this is what we're doing to really protect folks who are vulnerable in the workplace. So is it a matter of really drilling or creating a, uh, like a mindfulness ongoing training program for companies, for all employees to participate in? Is yeah, it as I simple mean, as that or as complex as that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, training is complicated, you know, because there's it's uh, how it's done, who's facilitating it, all of that good stuff. But I think if there's an ongoing commitment to continuous education and to, to, to recognize that, you know, this work is, is not just about raising awareness and it's not just personal um, learning, you know, learning opportunities. Like, that's a piece of it. I think the other pieces to it are um, leaders themselves really um, committed to to being coached around how they can show up as inclusive leaders. Um, I think that's absolutely key. And, um, and, and also the system changes. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of the CEOs of the major corporations that exist today they weren't the founders of those corporations. They inherited organizations, many of which have been around for 
you know, some around 50, 100 years, maybe a little bit longer than that. So they're inheriting a lot of um, systemic inequities that have just existed in the way that the business has always been done. So it will require those leaders to also, you know, whether it's them or, you know, kind of charging their chief operating officers to really look at um, how business has been done in the past, survey both, you know, customers as well as staff to figure out, you know, are we as good as we think we are? Are we as, you know, we have these values on paper, but what does that actually mean? And how do we have a new lens to look at our work? And I mean, it, it, I think when people think of as big as that is, that's holistic, it's like, oh my God, we're boiling the ocean. Where do we start? I'm overwhelmed. It's like, you don't have to start with trying to boil the ocean. It's, it's really the, the kind of small steps of self-awareness. And um, that's why I, you know, I wrote the book that I did because it's, um, it's called Belonging at Work, but the subtitle is Everyday Actions You Can Take to Cultivate an Inclusive Organization. And those everyday actions can be as simple as reading a book like the book that I wrote or, um, you know, being intentional about building um, cross-cultural relationships in the workplace or outside of it to, you know, for your own personal growth and, and development and learning. Um, and if you are a person in the workplace who's in a leadership position, understanding the levers of power that you control mm-hmm. and you know, if it's beyond yourself, if you're the CEO, you certainly, I mean, you have a blank canvas in terms of what you want to accomplish and what you want your legacy to be in your business. Um, and this work, in my opinion, should be a part of that because that's what will, that's that's how you'll be remembered is how you use your business to do something good in our world right now where, you know, when it comes to people, when it comes to the planet, there's there's a lot that we could be doing. There's there's a lot of big, big challenges. And I think like with business and especially with entrepreneurship, when you see those challenges, there's a zillion opportunities there um, to step up and, and to do something that's meaningful. No, I agree. And I uh, definitely, I look forward to uh, reading the book, getting the book and reading the book. Um, I actually uh, ordered it today. So, um, oh, you. you know, I think that, uh, you know, there's a book written by uh, General McChrystal called Team of Teams, and I think it really goes hand-in-hand hand with what you're describing, and it's this need for really people to invest themselves in the people that they work with and they work around, to become more invested in each other's lives rather than kind of remaining siloed and... Um, isolated and in a lot of ways I mean that can solve multiple multiple issues but like you said we got just got to start one at a time and and start start on the journey because that's what it is yeah yeah and it, it's powerful it's like it, it's uh, you know the Margaret Mead quote of never doubt that you know a small group of people can change the world because that's usually you know that's how it starts it starts with a small group of people and um, so if, you, if it feels like you're, you know, if you're in a very large corporation, it feels like it's almost impossible because of where you sit in that organization. Don't don't doubt your power. You know, I mean, there's there's capital L leaders and there's lowercase leaders, and I think if you're committed to doing this work, you are you're a change maker in the workplace, and um, and that becomes contagious in a good way. You know, it becomes. Um, 
something where other people might ask you, you know, why are you committed to, to building a cross-cultural relationship with another colleague or with folks in the community? And if you can talk about why that matters to you, why it helps you learn and grow, um, you may inspire other people, you know. I mean, other people might be scared. They might not know how to start this work or, or you know, or why it's important. So just those simple conversations um, done in a respectful way, really, it, it can change hearts and minds. And that's, that's a lot of what this work is. And that's, that's why it's not easy. Um, but it is absolutely rewarding, especially when you see people with having those aha moments and seeing why this matters. You know, and, and the impact that it has. That's awesome, and I think that's a uh, kind of a great note to uh, leave on. I, uh, I appreciate your taking the time to uh, chat today, and um, like I said, we'll have to stay in touch and kind of pick this up again in the future. Thanks again, Rose. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Talk to you in a little bit.